Open your Bibles to Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. The passage may be found in your pew Bibles on page 876. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, which is the translation that Pastor Wes will be preaching from. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus by his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water to cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you, in your lifetime, received your good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, Between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said, If they do, if they do not hear from Moses, or do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced by someone should rise, if someone should rise from the dead. May God bless our understanding of the reading of this holy word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. O Lord, our God, I do pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts that we might see, believe, and obey your word uh, by the grace of the Holy Spirit who uh, is at work in us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, as we begin, I want to make a statement that I have made uh, many times before. And that is, it is out of place for the church to advocate for the platforms and positions of the political parties. However, we cannot stand on the sidelines, cede the worldview of culture to the politicians and the unbelieving intellectuals, uh, where they are pushing a worldview, the church has a responsibility to stand up and push back and uh, call uh, out where, um, where there's rebellion and uh, call uh, our nation, our people, uh, our church uh, to 
uh, faithfulness. Uh, so as an introduction to this sermon, I'm going to use a current event to illustrate one of the great evils of our time. Uh, we are living in a nihilistic culture that is being driven by a pervasive relativism. Uh, what, is, what does that mean? Well, when I was a college student, uh, and then also as a seminary student, we learned about relativism as a theory. Relativism teaches that value judgments such as truth or beauty or morality have no universal validity but are valid only for the persons or groups of people holding this or that view. In other words, there is no objective truth. There is no objective morality according to the philosophy of relativism. Truth is relative to each person. And in seminary and in college, I was a a philosophy minor, and so we had uh, many times that we got to talk about this, but we used to mock the idea of relativism because we could not uh, conceive of our culture being so smitten with such such an empty-headed, inane position and philosophy. Uh, We knew people on the fringes held such views. We knew that people in academic uh, chairs were teaching this, uh, but we never would have guessed that it would gain traction in greater society. And boy, were we wrong. Uh, Thirty years later, the general population believes that each person is entitled to his or her truth. In fact, uh, to use the the pronouns his or her, people would uh, even question that uh, because truth has, objective truth has been so far pushed outside of our nation's belief system. And relativism is bad enough, but it has been coupled with an ugly nihilism. Nihilism expresses itself as a, as a relentless negativity or cynicism suggesting an absence of values or beliefs. In other words, people don't care that relativism is unsustainable. They don't care that society is collapsing. They don't care that people's lives are being destroyed by a general uh, incivility towards their fellow citizens because, according to nihilism, nothing matters. You know, uh, last January, uh, I'm sorry, not January, uh, July and August, I, I had covid and I basically could do nothing but lie in bed, and um, and I would watch these videos uh, of the riots out in Portland and Seattle, and I would think, how are people thinking this is a good thing? How is this happening in our culture? Why are the police not stepping in? Why are why has the citizenry of those cities risen up? And I bet I came to the conclusion it's just a raging nihilism. 
People don't care for each other. They don't care for the institutions. Uh, People are openly now living as if there are no consequences. We're living through an ugly time. As one example of many that I could have chosen, uh, this, past, this past week our president and his administration tried to pass a, a $3.5 trillion government overhaul plan. When I decided to use this illustration, I thought it was going to be passed on Thursday and things, I guess, fell apart. So I thought it was off the table. I would use it as an illustration so that it would not be in place, so to speak, and people think that I'm pushing one view or another from the pulpit. Uh, So I'm not doing that. Rather, I'm bringing this up as an illustration of how pervasive this nihilistic relativism has become. It has... The philosophy is being openly pushed by the highest powers in our nation. Uh, President Biden, the President of the United States, said repeatedly that his plan would cost zero dollars. I assume you may have heard this. Others in the administration said that this $3.5 trillion plan would actually reduce the deficit. This is unseemly. This is worse than a lie. A lie tries to deceive. This is just a statement put out there that is false on its face. It's something else than a lie. It redefines the meaning of the word cost. And also, I I heard, this is not in my notes, but I I saw a little... uh, little headline from the, the satire site, the Babylon Bee, uh, something to the effect that uh, a woman justifies her $3.5 trillion spending spree to her husband by saying it costs zero dollars. Um, the statement that is being put out there is a statement that has no concern for the political or civic consequences. And a large portion of our nation lives their lives with a similar lack of reality. How do we turn this around? Maybe we can't turn it around. Maybe we continue on this path of assured destruction. No truth to unify our culture. No care for our fellow citizens to pull us together as a nation. No attention to the unavoidable consequences. Where is there hope? Is there any path back? First of all, a path back to where we were 30 years ago or 70 years ago, put us back in the 1950s, I think, or 200 years ago, This is insufficient. It is misguided to try and go back to earlier periods in our nation's life. We were on a ruinous path then, but it had not reached the the same wretchedness that we have presently. But we are here today because of the direction that our nation had been going. 
And secondly, it is not simply a change in philosophy that is needed in America. Rather, our nation needs to repent of our rebellion against God. We need to read God's word and believe what he says in his word. We need to relentlessly obey his word. Therefore, we need to relentlessly read and study his word so we know what he requires of us. And as we examine the last few verses of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, I hope that it will be clear why this is the case. Uh, We preach through books of the Bible here at Westminster. And so the last time I preached, two weeks ago, we looked at the first part of the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, Today, uh, I hope to take us through verses 27 through 31. When we left off two weeks ago, the rich man was in hell, but he could see from heaven to where Lazarus was, where Lazarus was seated at Abraham's side in a place of honor. The rich man begged Abraham to send Lazarus with just a drop of water on the tip of his finger so that that one little drop of water might cool um, his tongue. Such was his suffering. And Abraham rebuffed his begging, pointing out that there was a great uncrossable chasm between heaven and hell. And if people die without Christ, they remain without him for eternity. But the opposite is true. Those who die in Christ will remain with him forever. will never cross that chasm. It is fixed one encouraging part about the sermon that, uh, or, or this passage, this parable, that I don't, did, I don't think I brought forward clearly enough last week, that's just kind of on my heart right now, is that we go through suffering here in this life. We go through impoverished times. We're going through a very difficult time in our nation's history right now. But we look to the Lord Jesus Christ. There is blessing that awaits for those who trust in him. Lazarus, a man that was so poor, he could not, and and so helpless, he had to be drugged to the gates of the rich man's palace. He could not stop the dogs from licking his wounds. Yet, he acceded at Abraham's um, right hand in the place of honor for all eternity. So we pick up in verse 27. The man realizes, there is, the rich man realizes there is no relief that's going to come. Therefore, his mind shifted from his own suffering to his five brothers who were still living and who were living their lives without God. And the rich man thinks, if I can't have any relief from my suffering, maybe I can send some kind of warning to them because presumably they were living the same kind of life he was living. Very selfish, self-concerned, loving his money, hating God, and uh, 
he wanted Abraham to send Lazarus back from the dead to warn them that hell is indeed a reality and that the, that the suffering is unbearable. But Abraham refused his request by telling him that they should read the scriptures. So look at verses 27 through 29 again. And he said, and then he said, I beg you, Father, to send him to my brother's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear him. The rich man's brothers already had everything they needed in order to get into heaven without Lazarus returning from the dead to warn them. All the Jewish families went to the, went to the synagogue every Sabbath. They heard the word of God read. They sang the word of God as they sang the, the Psalms. And they may have heard a sermon each week that presented the grace of God. So many rabbis were unbelieving, it's no telling what they heard. But they may have heard sermons that actually presented the grace of God. Their problem was not a lack of information, but a lack of faith to believe what the Word of God says. And it's interesting to me that the rich man himself, even though he is in hell, and he is seeing and experiencing the truthfulness of the Scriptures, he still does not have a heart that believes what God says in his word. He still thinks that the scriptures are insufficient. He thinks that something more is needed than to hear God speaking in his word. In other words, his heart has not changed. Even though the truthfulness of the scriptures has been confirmed to him, his heart is still not disposed to believe God, but rather is hardened against him. So he rejected Abraham's response in verse 30, saying, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. I don't know about you, but I can very distinctly remember uh, in eighth grade um, and other times in high school, uh, thinking uh, along these lines before I became a Christian. I wanted God to give me proof that he was real. I felt it was unfair of God to expect me to, expect me to believe in him, to change my life, to make sacrifices uh, for him without some kind of clear evidence or verification that he was real. Uh, if he showed me some verifiable proof, then I'd give him my life without reserve. And I, I imagine this is a common line of thinking. God, give me a stronger argument for your existence. Give me a clear demonstration of your reality. I will not believe in you until you do. This exchange between the rich man and Abraham uh, gives an insight into the heart of, uh, of unbelief. If a person will not believe what God has said in his word, well, he will not believe anything else that God does either. Think about it. The Israelites saw the ten plagues against Pharaoh. 
They crossed through the Red Sea on dry land because God had split the, uh, the Red Sea in half. They were led through the desert by the Shekinah glory of God. They had a visual reminder of the presence of God everywhere they went during those 40 years. Yet what did they do? They grumbled and complained against God everywhere they went because their hearts were unbelieving. They saw the miracles of God. They saw the deliverance of God. They themselves were delivered by Him. And their hearts were unbelieving. Listen to Psalm 95. Uh, The psalmist says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall never or they shall not enter my rest. They saw the works of God with their own eyes day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, scores of years, 40 years. Yet their hearts, it says here in Psalm 95, always went astray. They they never knew his ways. The writer of Hebrews comments on Psalm 95 and the Israelites' lack of faith uh, by saying, For good news came to us just as to them, to the Israelites, but the message they heard did not benefit them uh, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. They were unbelieving, even though they were living under God's presence. In Deuteronomy 9, listen how directly God speaks to the Israelites, yet they would not believe. Deuteronomy 9, I think it's verses 6 and 7 or 5 and 6, they stubbornly persisted in their rebellion against God. And God said, Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people, or literally a stiff-necked people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord to God, your God to wrath in the wilderness from the first day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came into this place. You have been rebellious against the Lord. The people also, while living here on earth, living in Judah when, when Jesus was uh, his, living here on earth during his public ministry, they observed his life, they heard his teaching, they saw his miracles, yet the majority did not believe. And the soldiers... Remember the soldiers guarding the tomb? When Christ rose from the dead, there was an earthquake. The angels, uh, or an angel uh, rolled the, the rock away from the tomb. The soldiers were so scared that they fainted. Then they got up, went back into the city, and instead of believing in God, they allowed themselves to be paid off by the chief priests. And so Abraham's point to the rich man 
is that if people are not willing to listen to the Scriptures, even the most spectacular miracle, like Lazarus coming back from the dead, will not persuade them to believe. And so he says in verse 31, He, Abraham, said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. If you are here this morning and you do not believe in God do not and do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, I have a challenge for you. I want you to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's, I think, 117 chapters. If you read just one chapter a day, you could read those four books in less than four months. Maybe you might want to read that chapter one in the morning, the same chapter in the evening, so you read it, those four books, twice in the space of four months. But I have this challenge for you. Uh, pray each time you read the Bible. Ask God to give you faith to trust in Him and in His Son, Jesus Christ. Faith, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of Christ. If you're waiting for some miracle, if you're waiting for some confirmation, you have all you need here in the Word of God. Take it up and read it. Abraham is telling the rich man that the Scriptures are sufficient for you to believe. The world demands that we answer all the questions, the historical questions, you know, about um, Jonah and the whale. You know, how could that have happened? Or Moses parting the Red Sea. How could that happen? And so they insist we answer the historical questions and we provide answers. And then they switch to the subjects and they demand that we answer the moral objections like the, the problem of suffering, the problem of evil, or how could a child die at an early age? And so we offer Answers And then the world demands that we answer the religious questions. Like, why are there so many denominations? Why, if there's only one God, are there so many religions that teach so many different things? And so we offer our answers. And then they, um, and then they go on to the, um, the practical questions like, well, if God is really God... Why is the church so full of hypocrites? Why is the church so judgmental? Why is the church so self-righteous? And on and on and on it goes. Enough is never enough. Abraham says that we are not allowed to allow the world to be the judge over the Bible. Charles Spurgeon was once asked how he defended the Bible. And he likened the Bible to a lion saying, I do not defend a lion. I open the cage and let the lion out to defend itself. The Word of God is sufficient for a person to believe. The Bible is sufficient for all things necessary for God's glory. It is sufficient for all things pertaining to man's salvation and our obedience to Him. Secular science places itself above the Bible. 
and it feels that it can dictate to us what we are to believe and how we are to understand the Bible. And of course, I'm not saying that we should have a Bible without science mentality. I'm not saying that at all. Science, when practiced according to the first principles of science, will fit hand in glove with the scriptures because all truth is God's truth. Secular science, which is not pure science, but is a philosophy of science, by definition excludes God and should not be allowed to set the agenda for how we read the Bible, including Genesis 1 and 2. The same with culture. Our culture tries repeatedly to tell us what we can or cannot believe, what we can or cannot teach. Congress, the Supreme Court, the rules of political correctness, nor anyone or anything else in our culture can be allowed to stand above the Scripture and dictate to us how we are to read the Bible. The sufficiency of Scripture is the only hope that we have of reversing the nihilistic relativism that is pervading our culture and is driving our nation towards destruction. Abraham said to the rich man, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Sadly, we must contend not only with an unbelieving world, but we must also contend with much of evangelical Christianity, which has grown what I heard one person call pluralistic ears. We live in an age where church leaders urge Christians to accommodate culture into their beliefs. We must not be too offensive, we're told. You know, love, 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 lollipops and sunshine. We must show the world that we love them by adjusting the clear teaching of Scripture to fit the world's sensibilities. Frankly, As I've thought about it, I don't think that church leaders are adjusting the Bible to fit the world because the world demands it. Rather, it appears that the people in the churches have already adjusted their sensibilities, already adjusted their priorities, already adjusted their lifestyles to fit culture. And the church leaders are adjusting the Bible to fit the world in order to keep from offending the membership of the churches. The sufficiency of Scripture goes hand in hand with the authority of Scripture. If the Bible and the Bible alone is not our final and determinative determinative authority, the church will lose its bearings and our nation will grow more and more relativistic, more and more nihilistic. So, is the, are the Holy Scriptures your final and determinative authority? Does it drive your priorities and your lifestyle? Do you read the scriptures daily because it is God's word? Do you read it once a year or more than once a year? Because it is God's word 
to His creatures, to us. In Jesus Christ, it is God's love letter to us. Do you take time and effort to seek out the answers that are raised while you are reading the Bible? It's that important. This is God's Word. How can we trust in the sufficiency and authority of the Bible? Well, that's a whole seminary course in and of itself. But this morning, I want to direct you to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Christ, your Savior, is the embodiment and fulfillment of the Bible. When you read in the Bible about God's grace and His mercy, you are reading about Christ. When you read about God's holiness and justice, you are reading about Christ. When you read about God's salvation, you are reading about Christ. Scriptures reveal to us our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Read the Bible with the eyes of faith fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't let, don't get into the flow of culture. Reject the nihilistic relativism that is all around us, that is just uh, like a tidal wave breaking on us every day. Trust the scriptures because you trust God and you trust the God who loved us so much that he sent his son Jesus to be our savior. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, I do pray that you would make us Bible people because we love you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to have the spiritual fortitude to stand underneath the breaking tidal waves of uh, culture and its uh, sweeping relativism. Lord, you have promised to cause us to stand firm uh, in our faith in our Lord Jesus. Help us. Fill us with your spirit. Fill us with your word because the word of God is the Holy Spirit's classroom whereby he shapes and forms us. Do it, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.